If citizens can't escape death and taxes, the IRS can't seem to avoid yearly processing problems. Even as this year's filing season ended, the IRS was dealing with millions of returns, paper returns, from last year, to say nothing of slow call centers and poor in-person service. For the view of the Government Accountability Office, we turn to the Director of Strategic Issues, Jessica Lucas-Judy. Ms. Lucas-Judy, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And again, the IRS seems to be this deja vu situation. What is their current status with respect to the backlog left over from last year? And what do things look like as they start to digest what they're taking in for this year? Well, as we reported, going into the 2021 filing season, so last year, IRS had a backlog of about 8 million unprocessed returns from 2020. They were gradually able to work through that backlog and catch up, but then ran into the same problem going into this filing season. As of the end of 2021, they had about 10.5 million returns from 2021 that had not been fully processed and had to deal with those still while the 2022 filing season was beginning. Got it. And do we have any idea at this point yet how many paper returns have come in for the most recent filing season that ended earlier this month? Well, overall, most taxpayers do still file electronically, especially individual taxpayers. That percentage is is up over 90% and has stayed pretty steady. So for most taxpayers, if you file electronically, you have a pretty simple return. There are no problems. If you're owed a refund and you choose electronic deposit, you'll get it pretty quickly. Where IRS was running into difficulty was with the returns that were suspended or stopped due to errors. And what we found last year with 2021 was that the number of returns that were suspended due to errors just went up by quite a lot. And that was causing delays in taxpayers getting the returns processed and getting their refunds paid. And that just sort of snowballed, you know, as people are trying to find the status of their return and their refund, they're calling, they can't get through, maybe they would send a letter or they would think they needed to file a second copy of their return. So then there's correspondence that's piling up. They would go to the website and not be able to get enough information there. IRS was trying to direct people to its online tool, Where's My Refund? But the problem that we found there is Where's My Refund does not really provide sufficient information for a taxpayer to know what happened to their return. So it just had some basic information, you know, that your return had been received, and then it was processing and then you know, eventually it would tell you that the, the refund had been issued. But if your return was stuck somewhere, all you got was processing. And that went on sometimes for weeks and weeks and weeks for some taxpayers. Then the cycle would start again. The taxpayer would try calling. They would send a letter. They would send another copy of their return. And so the IRS just got more and more and more behind. So we made recommendations that IRS have a plan in place to modernize Where's My Refund, that it try to figure out the reasons for the volume of returns that were being stopped due to errors and try to, you know, if there were going to be some recurring errors, maybe try to address some of those. We're talking mainly about the paper returns here, correct? Both paper and electronic, actually. Paper had even more delays. That always takes longer. It's a manual process. If you file your return on paper, somebody then has to open it, has to process it. Someone has to manually enter the data into IRS's systems. Then somebody else has to review it. And if you're owed a refund, you know, uh, that refund. But for the paper returns that do come in, at least they get logged as they come in so that they have some electronic representation. And that's how the IRS is at least marginally able to tell people what's going on with them. 
Right. And what was happening last year was from 2020 still, there was such a backlog of paper returns and other correspondence that they hadn't been able to process when the pandemic first hit and they had to shut down the processing centers and stop dealing with the mail. That was all piling up. So it took IRS quite a while to be able to work through that backlog. And they do everything as a first in, first out. Then if they were still dealing with correspondence and returns from 2020, the 2021 mail was coming in that was further behind in the queue. And so even though it was received, it would be a while before somebody could process it. And so that was certainly taking time as well. We're speaking with Jessica Lucas-Judy. She is the Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Is this all pandemic and workforce remote and can't get to the mail related? What's going on? Because it seemed like it was the pandemic that caused the initial delays. Well, this is something that IRS has been challenged with for a number of years, but the pandemic certainly exacerbated problems that were there already. Paper really has been a problem for the IRS. A lot of its processes are manual, and especially when you're dealing with paper returns, there are some returns and some schedules that can only be submitted on paper, and then you have some business and individual taxpayers who choose to submit on paper, and then a lot of the correspondence with IRS is also on paper. So all that paper, it adds up and people have to deal with it and you have to deal with it in person. And so that had been a problem even before the pandemic, but then when the pandemic shut things down, it took a while to try to resolve that backlog. And when you recommend that the IRS modernize its Where's My Refund program, that's a short phrase, but it seems like a heck of a big job. It is. It is. It's one of many systems and processes that the IRS has on its list of things that they would like to do as a project for modernization. But we were unable to get information on sort of, you know, what the actual plan was for modernizing Where's My Refund? You know, what was the timeline? What was the budget? And so that's what we were recommending that IRS do. And what's the IRS telling you? It seems like they're in the situation where Everyone's trying to fatten the pig by weighing it. They've got the inspector general for tax administration, the IRS, the TIGTA group looking at them. They've got you looking at them. They've got lots of external groups looking at them. Seems like a pressure cooker over there. Right. And there certainly is a a lot of interest uh, in this particular topic. But as I said, you know, the IRS did manage to make some improvements, even without a full-scale plan for modernizing Where's My Refund. They were able to make some tweaks to the tool and the system to provide some more information to taxpayers, which hopefully has helped with this current filing season. But it's still not a substitute for an overall modernization. I mean, the tool hasn't been modernized in about 20 years. Right. And the tool itself would not speed up processing necessarily, and especially dealing with paper. It would simply give more accurate accounts to people about where their return is in the queue. Right, which cuts down a lot on taxpayer frustration and confusion. And also, because so much of this is interrelated, might help cut down on the number of phone calls to IRS, the amount of correspondence to IRS, if people have a better idea of where their tax return is, where their refund is. Sure. And as you mentioned earlier, it would maybe cut down on the number of repeat copies of returns that people send in. That's got to add to the confusion. Exactly. And what does IRS say? Yeah, sure, we'll modernize it. Well, as with many things, it's contingent on funding. It'll be important for IRS to work with Treasury and to be in close communication with Congress to be able to have that plan developed and to have a good idea of what kind of funding investment it's going to take.
Right. So that there's a good request in from the administration for 2023 fiscal year, but we're months, who knows how long, from those appropriations actually coming through. Right. And it's one of only many things that the IRS is trying to tackle. They've had to modernize their telephone system. One of the things that they're trying to expand and that they have been expanding is a callback feature for customers. There are very long hold times when you call the IRS, and it takes a while to get through. And so one option that's available on some of the IRS phone lines now is just as, you know, when you call your bank or some other entity, if there's a wait, it can tell you what the estimated wait time is and offer to call you back when it's your turn. And so that's something that the IRS has been expanding, but it had to upgrade its phone system to be able to handle that. And then again, if they tell you when they're going to call back, it's still not sufficient to say, yeah, we'll call you back the day after Christmas. (laughs) Right, right. It's an alternative to having to be on hold. But again, you know, something that can be a little bit more convenient for taxpayers so they can at least do something else while they're waiting for the IRS. But another challenge then is you still only have a certain number of assisters who are available to take those calls. So that's another challenge the IRS has had in staffing and hiring and making sure that it has sufficient staff, particularly in this current job market. So they've been doing surge hiring. They recently got expanded authority to be able to bring people on board a little bit more easily. They've been holding job fairs and trying to get people on board, but they still have to train them and get them in the door before that can really help. Yeah, the work that they do is particular and difficult and sometimes really arcane because of the depth of the tax laws. And so just hiring people is only the beginning of getting them productive. Exactly. Um, They've also been relying on recent retirees or others who have left the service to bring them back on a temporary basis because they don't require as much training, if any training at all, to be able to help out. And they're moving people within IRS from some other functions to be able to do things like answer the phones, deal with the correspondence, process the returns, and otherwise try to manage the backlog. The commissioner has said that he wants all the backlog dealt with by the end of this calendar year. Jessica Lucas-Judy is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 